Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Harman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Harman Institute North America. We're recording on Monday, September 21st. I'm really excited that this week of Yom Kippur, the day of Jewish atonement and repentance and maybe even redemption, to be recording with two scholars whose work I admire enormously to try to have a big conversation about how societies can atone and repent for their sins. Jill Stoffer is Associate Professor at Haverford College of Peace, Justice, and Human Rights. Uh, Jill, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. And Aaron Kohler is Professor of Near Eastern Studies at Yeshiva University. Good to see you, Aaron. It's great to see you. Honored to be here. Thank you. So here's the conversation I want us to try to have together, which is both of you operate out of really different disciplines. Uh, Jill working in, as I said, the realm of human rights, uh, and Aaron studying the Hebrew Bible. But there's a big conversation that I think we're overdue to have as Americans right now about societal uh, atonement, societal repentance, the ability to remedy the sins of our past. And the big question I want us to explore is whether societies can actually do something like this. Is it possible? It's already a hard enough question, because many times in religious traditions, when we talk about repentance or atonement, we're talking about particular individuals. It's really hard for individuals to correct your mistakes, to actually stand, whether it's once a year or once every 10 years, and say, you know, I want to do differently. I want to make up for the mistakes I've made to the past. I want to apologize to individual people. I want to try to make it right and be a different person. But it's a totally different question to ask whether societies can actually do this. Can a whole society reckon with its failings uh, and come away different as a result? Let me start with you, Aaron, um, as, a, as a scholar of the Hebrew Bible, because Yom Kippur, as we know, is a holiday that's not really in the Bible about individuals atoning. It seems to be about a kind of collective process of purification. So I guess I'm just first of all curious from your disciplinary perspective, do you think that the Bible actually thinks it's possible for the Israelite society to actually repent and atone? And what's the technologies by which it imagines that taking place? Right. So that's a great way of setting it up, because you're right. Yom Kippur is probably not the place I'd actually look to, to address this question in the terms that are probably most meaningful to us, as you sort of gestured at. Uh, there is a notion of impurity and defilement that has to be cleansed out of society. And that's done in cultic ways, like there are rituals and priestly activities that have to happen. And I, I suspect that if we probe that very deeply, we might be able to come out with something that's somehow meaningful to us. But I don't think that's a text the, that I would look at first for thinking about our context and, and what we mean by atonement and redemption in our context. Here I think the prophets might be more helpful. I think one of the challenges we'll have with the Hebrew Bible and, and probably most pre-modern texts is that they don't work out a lot of these things in a lot of detail. Sort of big ideas we can find, but what that would actually mean in practice, I think there might be a lot of work left to do, and maybe that's where Jill's work is, is actually a lot more helpful. But I do think of something like the first chapter of Isaiah. Where Isaiah says, you know, first of all, you're all people of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the first thing I need to tell you. Like, that's the people I'm talking to. You're all wicked. Second of all, that's because there's a lot of injustice in society. You're not defending the widow and the orphan. And third of all, I'm now going to lament the fall of Jerusalem, which used to be a spiritual high place, but is now full of injustice and corruption. But I look forward to a time where justice can be restored and the city can be restored to its heights. So in broad strokes, he seems to envision something like that. What would that would actually mean is obviously, you know, it's easier to trade in sort of aphorisms than to get into the nitty gritty of what that would look like. But he seems to be saying like, look, you know, it works on you. You got to figure out how to weed out corruption and 
make sure that the widow and the orphan are taken care of, and if so, Jerusalem can return to heights. So there's a vision there, but you know, there's a lot of empty spaces in his vision. Right. The actual work of getting from a corrupt society to redeemed society is something that the Hebrew Bible doesn't even seem to know can take place. It wants it to take place. But as you said, it hearkens to something of an imagined past, but we're not even sure whether it's something that ever actually happened, that a society came about with its repentance and its atonement. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's also what makes this so powerful, like sermonically and homiletically, but not necessarily practically. It's great to be able to get up and say, like, you know, hey, this is a place that used to be full of, of justice and righteousness. And like, we have to get back there. So that's actually an important thing to say. But it's great to hear that in the pews and be like, OK, now what does it actually mean once you get out there and be like, what do I do? I, I'm motivated. What do I do? Great. Uh, one of the things I do want to come back to a little later, because it does connect, Jill, to your work, which is the use of the metaphor of the widows and the orphans, the isolated individuals who are let down most by the society. And I also want to get back to the prophets themselves become individuals, to use the title of your book, Jill, who suffer the most ethical loneliness, because they see the brokenness of the society, but they are left bereft by its own failings. But let me, let me start by asking you, you've studied countries and societies that have gone through attempts at post-conflict transformation. And I guess I'm just curious first, does it actually work? Can a society that has experienced or perpetrated a genocide actually repair what took place? Is there is there some vision of atonement and repentance that's actually learnable from these examples? Well, it's tremendously difficult, but I think an amazing thing about human beings is that we can learn how to be different than we have been in the past. But one of the things that my book does is point out that no institution or state is going to be good enough to get that done on its own, that it really does hang on the work of individuals. It becomes a broad social responsibility to live in such a way that the people who were left behind or abused or those left behind by those who didn't survive, to make sure that the people who are most fragile know that there's a commitment in the society to have that not happen again, and to know that they live amongst people who wish that the past were otherwise, who repudiate what happened, and who have a will to go forward in a different way. Of course, making that come to pass is a tremendously difficult thing, and it relies on a lot of different individuals kind of stepping up and becoming someone who learns how to hear what before was inconvenient to hear. So the book is about practices of hearing and why they fail and also how they might succeed better. So anyway, you invite me on to answer questions about whether societies can move forward, and I can tell you that I have a skepticism about it, but I don't have a skepticism about what individuals are capable of when they come together. And so there's a way in which my message is somewhat anti-institutional and anti-state because it relies on a lower level of everyday people, realizing that sometimes you can do this even if you don't have, for instance, adequate political leadership, as you know, I would argue we don't in the United States right now. But nonetheless, we see organizing, from, for instance, since Black Lives Matter, basically taking on that social responsibility for themselves because the responsible organs aren't doing that. I guess the thing that I'd love for you to tease out is one of the things that made so much sense to me about your book and also broke my heart in reading your book is do you describe the authentic human experience of it could be either a, a victim of sexual violence who's not believed or a person who is part of a quote-unquote truth and reconciliation process who testifies, but the society needs reconciliation kind of more than it needs truth. In other words, we kind of have to get to the second phase. And that individual has now testified on a deep brokenness that they've experienced, but actually ultimately feels left behind by the society. 
And just now you said what we need is those individuals to be part of the process of repair. So what is that actually, what do you think that is supposed to look like? How do you hold on to the experience of victimhood that individuals are authentically going to experience as part of a repair when in fact the society almost needs to move on from those victim experiences in order to get to the next phase? Yeah, well, what you're pointing to is the conflict that sometimes arises between individual healing and individual needs and needs for social unity. Those can not always need the same things. For instance, in South Africa, people who felt resentment, justified resentment at the way that they had been treated in the past, but were expected to participate in a ritual of forgiveness. One of the arguments I make in the book is that had they been allowed to express their justified resentment, it might have made it more likely that they could forgive. But when they're expected to forgive uh, before being adequately heard and before having what happened be adequately redressed, it's almost as if they're being subjected to a social expediency that isn't going to address, you know, their justified resentment. Again, the subject is atonement, and part of my book is about the way in which sometimes resentment is more justified than forgiveness when social conditions haven't reached a setting where it's reasonable to forgive. Mm -hmm. And Aaron, in your most recent book, uh, Unbinding Isaac, which I think just came out, it's like a pandemic publication. It has someone who's also tried to publish a book during the pandemic. Congratulations that there's actually a physical Uh, copy. In your book, Unbinding Isaac, you effectively make reference to the same uh, phenomenon that Jill's describing, which is that the tradition venerates the near sacrifice of Isaac, and effectively in doing so, invisibilizes Isaac's sacrifice himself. In other words, when the story is described as about being about Abraham's loyalty and fidelity to God, uh, it invisibilizes the near victim of the story. And the line that I'll quote from page 98 in your chapter called Criticizing Kierkegaard, you say, very often those justifying religious devotion, even at the expense of the sacrifice of morality, are not the ones who stand to suffer. And the next page, you go on to say, ignoring Isaac in the story of the binding of Isaac is monstrous, because fundamentally, he's the voice that's not heard. And it's on the basis of Isaac's own sacrifice that this great moment takes place. So I want to acknowledge that I'm juxtaposing, quote unquote, real life, (laughs) uh, major moments of contemporary atrocities with mythic atrocity. But I put those together, actually, because the stories that we tell about old atrocities shape how we think about new ones. So maybe you could help us unpack a little bit. What are the moral consequences that come with the kind of ignoring of Isaac? So because of what you just said about the sort of mythic versus real life, I don't want to dwell too much on the actual binding of Isaac, if that's okay. But I think you're, maybe there's a tension inherent in the question that you started with that Jill is sort of sharpening, that when you say, can a society atone for itself? Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that every single person in society has now reached some point of atonement? So like the society is perfected. So I mean, putting aside the implausibility of that actually happening. Do we mean like there's some sort of aggregate of individual atonements that then constitutes a societal atonement? Or is there something that's actually not necessarily the aggregate of individual atonements, that society has moved on to a different place? And I think Jill is saying like, well, hold on, you know, you can't rush to that. If you're going to leave a person behind, then we've, as you say in in your work, we've actually increased the violence then. We've doubled the violence. You know, this person was a victim and now they're a victim again because they're not being hurt. One could argue, I'm not sure I'm interested in arguing it right now, but one could argue that that's a price that might need to sometimes be paid. You know what? If uh, if a country is going to come to a new place and the general society is going to reach a place of civility and like actually sort of consciously entering a new stage of its joint existence, and there are individuals who are, uh, like violence is done against them twice now, 
if you're in charge, you might say like, look, I'm really sorry. I, I hate to hurt people, but like, unfortunately, these people are going to have to feel pain and we're going to have to not listen to them fully in order to get the general movement in a, in a new place. I don't know. I, I'm far from being willing to put my name to that and say like, yeah, this is absolutely necessary. You said you read a chapter called Criticizing Kierkegaard. If I could like bring Kierkegaard here. So Kierkegaard is the guy who's like, there are things that just can't be heard. Like there are sometimes people who can't speak to anyone else. So I think, Joe, you write so powerfully about the inability to hear those people. Kierkegaard seems to turn around and say like, you know what? Sometimes you have to realize that actually no one's in a position to listen to you. So it's not necessarily their fault. It's, it's a tragedy, right? It's not that it's any less tragic. But like the listeners may literally not be present to hear that kind of voice, hear that note being injected into, into this conversation. So I don't know how to put that all together, but I'm listening to you and trying to struggle with, struggle with this. Yeah, I think everything you're saying is true. And one of the things that I think matters about the fact that we're always going to live in a world where not everyone gets heard is that we could be better at recognizing that when a largish group of people don't get heard, all of their hurt, resentment, and the sense of being disenfranchised is still there residing in the background of any attempt to move forward. And it's probably going to come back in some way. And it could come back in violent ways if it's frustrated enough. So sometimes, you know, it's funny, um, there's this tendency to think that it's human nature to feel vengeful when something bad happens to you and that revenge ends up being a form of violence. But um, I think what people actually want is a form of dessert, that people get what is coming to them. And that doesn't have to mean violence, right? The patterns that are there for people to follow when they feel like they haven't been heard in a specific society will dictate what they do when they feel left out. And if striking back in violence is the norm, then that's what they'll do. But if it isn't, if there are other roads that can be taken, then it's more likely that people can move forward even if not everyone gets heard. Another thing I wanted to say with regard to that is that yes, there's stuff that can't be heard because of the frames that we all inhabit. But one of the things that I wanted to draw attention to in my book is that we could all be better at learning to see the limits of our own frames so that we might on occasion hear a story and think, no, 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 but then question ourselves rather than the person we're listening to. So that we say, what is it about me that cannot hear this thing that matters so much to this other person and interrupt yourself such that you might say, okay, I need to shift my frame so that I recognize that I've been complicit in a harm that I didn't even know about for my whole life. It's interesting. I had a experience a number of years ago when I was working at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, where I, I don't have any training in what is conventionally called Holocaust studies, which are essentially a modern discipline. But my training is I'm a historian of ancient Judaism. And I intuited that there's probably something that a historian of ancient Judaism could figure out to study about the Holocaust as part of the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies. And I came across a whole section of the library for which the book bindings had never been cracked. No one had taken them off the shelf. And there were a collection of books called Yisker books, Yisker Bicher, which were essentially testimonials written by victims. And it's incredibly interesting. They have basically historians of the Holocaust have no use for them because they're wrong most of the time. <laughs> wrong, but you know what I mean? Like if you're, if you're writing an encyclopedia of camps and ghettos, which has been a big project of the museum, well, the Nazis kept good records 
Jews kept bad records because they couldn't. And so when they get little inaccuracies wrong, scholars don't know what to do with this. And I had this moment that your book, Jill, helped me figure out. I was like, oh, this is a story of ethical loneliness because these people are testifying their own experience, but there's nobody actually out there to listen to the version of the stories that they're telling. And in part, part of the problem is because the memory of the Holocaust has been under assault as well, they're not usable in a court of law. So they're not only not hearable as a quote-unquote history, but they're actually counterproductive to even preserving the narrative that they're trying to tell. So what are the technologies that we use? I'm curious, I guess, both on an individual level, but a societal level, how do we listen to stories differently? How do we listen to victims differently? Obviously, there are public policy ramifications to listening to victims, post-Me Too, for instance. But what is the conditioning of the self? I'm curious for either of you to talk about what is the conditioning of the self or even a hermeneutic, what's a reading strategy where we try to excavate out those stories that are just, for all sorts of reasons, harder for us to, to hear, but out there as part of what we might call the ethical record? Yeah, related to what you've just said, I spent a fair amount of time watching the testimony of Holocaust survivors at the Yale Archive, the Fortunoff Archive of Holocaust Testimonies. And I wrote about some of them in, in, in my book. And there are moments in those tapes when the interviewers, who obviously are there for the right reasons, also really want the story to go in a certain way. And so they guide it. They want it to be a story of human resilience. But sometimes that's not what the survivor is saying that in addition to the resilience, there's something lost that is not regained, can't come back. And there are all kinds of reasons why someone who's been more fortunate than that might not want to hear that or might not be able to hear it. Part of it is self-protection. People don't want to know that we live in a world where part of yourself might be destroyed and you don't get it back. And it still is a worthwhile story to learn that that's true, but you can still go on and live a fulfilling life, you know? But we want the story that feels a little bit better, which is that human beings can take anything and still be fine. I just, I just don't think that's true. I feel like certainly pre-modern literature is, is sort of all in the in the category that you're talking about, Yehuda and Angel. Like, like, we don't think we get exact records of anything that happened. It just wasn't what people were interested in doing. So you know, I had the opportunity to teach a course a couple of times on responses to Khurban, to catastrophe in Jewish literature, where we actually started with the 20th century because... I feel like students had to understand like what it means to undergo a catastrophe. And then we would go back to like the first temple and the second temple and Bar Kokhba and a little bit of the Crusades and piecing together what actually happened. So that's a different class. Like, you know, then you need a whole bunch of different uh, data sets and lots of archaeology. And then we have we can sort of triangulate from different kinds of literature and say, like, OK, well, they also they all tell like three different stories, but like they have the following things in common. So that's probably what like more or less happened. But what we actually have is the you know, survivor's testimonies. And, and I think, you know, Yehuda could probably speak about this in more detail than I could. But it's it's complicated. I mean, they don't all wind up with like, and we all lived happily ever after. It's all good. Like, no, actually, we lost huge amounts of, usually not about people. Like, that's not what they're so interested in. Like, they're not interested in demographics. But we lost, like, huge institutions. We lost cultural values. We lost a sense of continuity. Like, there's just been a trauma in our society. And, you know, hey, like we're here telling the story, but that doesn't mean that we've patched it all together and, and moved on happily. You know, the lenses that you're that you're giving us are actually familiar, although I, I hadn't thought of them in, in those terms. Hi, I'm Claire Suprin. And if you're listening to Identity Crisis, you're probably curious about the major ideas and debates of the day affecting Jews in America. So I have great news for you. 
I'm the co-editor with Yehuda Kurtzer of The New Jewish Canon, a book that's out this summer. You can find out more about it at newjewishcanon.com. In this book, we've gathered all Jewish ideas that were expressed between 1980 and 2015. Well, maybe not quite everything, but it contains major texts and debates that were vitally important to the American Jewish community, along with a series of reflective essays by today's thinkers that explain the debates and their importance. Read about it and how to buy it at newjewishcanon.com. I'd love to hear from both of you a little bit of reflection on, on history and memory, which is something that's very close to my heart. Both of you are effectively helping us rethink the calculus between history as the codified version of how people tell their stories and memory as a different form of codification. And sometimes, quote unquote, history is more right and sometimes memory is more right. And, and Jill, I'll just read a, a, a page from your book where you say on page 93, Discerning truths and transmitting facts are both important aspects of world building. They help us establish a shared world and set forth standards of judgments by which we hold ourselves and others accountable. But if we think that facts and truths fill out the vessel of communication, or that when we communicate facts and truths, transparent understanding always ensues, we will not be able to explain why conflicting facts and truths always emerge unless we content ourselves with saying that wherever truths conflict, only one of them is true. In many situations, especially those of post-conflict transition and reconciliation, meaningful experience will not bear out that conclusion. Indeed, every reconciliation rests on a fragile consensus, a new definition of past, present, and future that can only be won slowly, painfully, and cooperatively, and will never succeed in erasing or redefining every resistant narrative. So that sounds right to me. And at the same time, it's also, we are living in a moment when telling the true story is considered harder and harder to do. Even saying that phrase sounds like it's a political statement. Help us unpack, again, the business of storytelling and fact-telling and what it looks like both on a societal level and individual level to engage that question. Well, the first thing I want to say is that we are living in a time when there are certain types of arguments that I just can't believe we still have to make. Like climate change is real. And for some people, no matter what evidence you give them, they're going to say it's not. And that's a problem having to do with truth. But what I'm talking about is something different from that, which is that a historian's truth or a law court's truth Both of those have standards that they have to adhere to in order to be called truth. And both of those sometimes use those standards to say that other types of truths aren't true. And I feel like that is a misunderstanding about different social fields. So it's easiest for me to see in a law court when you can only ask or answer questions having to do with the facts of the case. And the facts of the case have to do with what the statute is that governs the case at hand. But... Sometimes the types of questions that have to do with a perpetrator's guilt have nothing to do with what happened to the world of the person who was harmed by the crime. And so if you're a survivor and you're in court and you can only answer questions that really have nothing to do with the thing that most matters to you, that's a way of being subjected to ethical loneliness because your truth can't be heard in that setting. There's a reason why law only hears certain types of truths and that's probably okay. But if we think that that's the limit of truth or that anybody who answers a different kind of question is therefore wrong about what they're saying, we're really missing the complexity of the ways in which human beings inhabit the world together. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want us to say, oh, truth is just relative and we could never actually come up with it. That is definitely not what I want to say. But I do want to say that truth is a complex thing, especially in a divided society or a society with a legacy of longstanding oppression. 
and that in order to understand what matters writ large to a society, you really have to spend a lot of time looking at lots of different sources. And some of them are going to be uncomfortable for a historian or a lawyer to let in because of their training. And we're all trained to look at the world in a certain way and to ask certain types of questions. I'm trained as a philosopher, so it really matters to me how we define our terms and how we structure our arguments. But I give papers at all kinds of different scholarly events with different types of people with different training, and I've learned, I'm like, oh, that's what I would have to say in order to make a convincing argument to you because of different training and not because I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. So that's not just, it's, that's both training and, and socially baked in resistances. Yes. The training is on me and the socially baked in resistances is on you. It reminds me of um, Ruth Franklin has this great book called A Thousand Darknesses, Lies and Truth and Holocaust Fiction. And she makes the argument early on in that book that for some reason, and we alluded to this before, memoir is devalued as somehow being not true, when in fact, she says, no, the, the standard should be what's good. <laughs> so like there are truths that are captured out of some Holocaust fiction that is much more powerful, much more effective at conveying what a memoirist is trying to do. And the blurring of that difference between fiction and memoir is, it serves the business of truth to blur them if you can actually interrogate what it is that you're trying to get out on the basis of your writing. Let me ask you one last question for both of you going forward. I could talk to you both all day, but I, I would love to ask one last question going forward, which is, so both of you have staked very significant claims about about the ethics of our story and the stories that we tell, whose voices we choose to elevate and whose we don't, how we take complicated stories and reduce them or don't to simple morality tales. We're living in a very, very fractious American moment. I feel like even though we're in it, we can see the correlation between the emergence of Me Too and the racial justice moment in America over this past year, which is precisely the emergence of human stories that are actually very clear about right and wrong, but that help to push a society against its simple morality tale that is told about itself. So in some ways, I don't think America will ever get to a real truth and reconciliation process unless you're watching kind of dystopic uh, alternative history television, although there's a lot of that now. But I wonder what guidance or suggestions both of you would give us and to our listeners of how to think, like, well, how, sh how should we be thinking about these moments as Americans? What should we be listening to? How do we become better listeners to alternative versions of the stories that are out there that help, as you say, fill out, Jill, the, the world of truth? And you know, ideally contribute to our standing as political beings as well, but at least in the short term, help us build the body politic that's capable of getting to that place. Yeah, that is a tremendously difficult question. I think the first thing I can say is that we could change the way we think about our own contribution to the social world to recognize that part of the world that we live in is something we inherited, that we didn't have any choices in how it got made. But worlds aren't built and then just left for you we are continually building worlds by the way that we reside alongside other people in them. So if we think about ourselves as actively engaged in world building at every moment, then that gives us a sense that what you inherited doesn't have to be the truth for all time. And when other people point out, you know, it might be you or it might be another group of people pointing out that something that has been accepted as true or set in stone is not and should not be that we could 
figure out how to live differently, how to build different worlds. Saying that is easier than, than imagining how it might be done. But what I said earlier about how we don't have to wait for institutions and states to do it for us, I mean that to be tremendously freeing to people. I see people, my students all the time, you know, deciding to make organizations that are going to, going to make a difference in their community on a small, small level, but like that's not nothing. And sometimes those things grow into something much larger. Everybody has the capacity to make a difference in the world that they inhabit. And some of those differences will be small and some of them might end up being large. But what matters is that you recognize that it is actually a responsibility that you have. You have it whether you want it or not, because we all are engaged in world building and all kinds of reasons why we might refuse to recognize that because it's hard. But I do think that that's what's required. I'll pick up on what Joe was talking about earlier about the frames that limit us. I think that's true about the stories that we tell. And then, Nihuda, as you said, the story that we tell about America limits us sometimes, right? We're like, oh, but America is this kind of place where everyone has equal opportunity. So, like, what could that mean? Like, how could that possibly be? That's a story that we tell, as Joe says, prevents us from hearing someone who tells something, a personal experience that clashes with that narrative. So I think about this more in terms of these, I say biblical stories, but I don't really mean them in terms of the text. I mean, like religious stories, like people come and they say like, well, here's a story that we tell, like, here's, here's my story. And that is you know, sometimes very empowering, but sometimes very limiting, because then anyone whose experience doesn't jive with the story that I like to tell, that the, which is the way I live my life. Like I, I see life through the lens of this narrative. And when someone says my lived reality doesn't actually jive with that, narrative. Since this narrative is just the lens, it's the frame through which I see everything, I wind up doubting that person. So my book is an exercise in like rereading a story. Like, here's a story. You might think you know what it teaches you. Actually, let's peel that back. Like, let's see. Does the story have to mean that? Like, maybe we could tell a different version of the same story that actually leads to a very, very different way of, of seeing the world. So look, Martin Luther King talks about the vision of America. And he's like, okay, here's the, here's the story. And here's where it's going to come to fruition. And like, so his is very powerful, but turns out to like not work for our century. So like, okay, what's a different story of America? Like, it's not that there's a single answer. It's not like, you know, well, if we can just get together for a little bit, we'll figure out the story of America that will then lead to the right answer. But I think we have to interrogate those stories because those stories are limiting as much as they're empowering. And sometimes they're doing all the great work and sometimes they're actually preventing us from taking the next step. So when we encounter a story that, or when we encounter a clash between what we think is the story and the lived reality, I think what Jill's teaching us is like, so go back to that story and like interrogate that story, see if that's absolutely necessarily the story. Is there actually some other version of the story that could be told that would allow you to move forward more productively now? Yeah, it's striking that oftentimes when societies undergo the process of remaking their core narratives about themselves, there are only seem to be two available options to people. One is radical dismantling of the existing story, and the other is doubling down on the story that exists. And it seems to require a certain amount of trauma to get people to realize that the story they were in is not the story that they thought they were in. I remember always being at a, a liberal synagogue in New York the evening after the November 2016 election, and it felt like I was in a shiva house. But the shiva wasn't for America. It was for the story that this group of liberal Upper West Side Jews had told about America. It was like suddenly, wait a second, is this not the America that I thought I had? And that experience of shattering, which ideally what you're both suggesting is investigating the new versions of our stories actually are is a humanizing effort and actually can widen our moral frame of view but if you've gotten to the point where all you've done is shattered that story it actually just it can wreck people as opposed to building them up 
I'm grateful to both of you for this conversation. I'll just say one last comment in advance of Yom Kippur. I started today by referencing Yom Kippur as possibly a story of repentance and atonement that might be useful to us. Aaron gently pushed back and suggests perhaps it's the prophets better than the Yom Kippur rite itself because the prophets are actually those individuals who are trying to remind the people of the gap between the world they're supposed to be in and the one that they're in. And that was really useful to us to be able to investigate, especially the whole metaphor of widow and orphan, because it's pr the prophets are uniquely capable of seeing all the people who are left behind when a society is not what it says it should be. I think one of the things I hear from both of these scholars and from their work is also the, the very business of being the individuals, like prophets, who are capable of looking for and seeing the gap between the society that it wants to be and that it is. I always have felt alienated by the prophets in some way because they never get listened to. That's what's so scary about the prophets is that they seem to see something no one else can see, but the social cost of enduring that is too hard to bear. So maybe our vision for atonement is not that we become prophets in our own community, communities or prophets of America. I think that's a one-way ticket to getting beaten up, which happens to the prophets in the Bible. The real business of prophecy is helping to become better storytellers or to help those around us to open their eyes, to open their ears, to take the pressure off the single individual, the whistleblower, to take the pressure off that one individual who is stuck in that terrible, painful awkwardness uh, of seeing things that other people are incapable of seeing. So with that, thank you so much for listening to our show this week, and really special thanks to my guests, Jill Stoffer and Aaron Kohler. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and edited by Alex Dillon. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman, music provided by SoCal. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show, and you can also rate and review us in iTunes, which will help more people to discover the show. You can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org, subscribe to the show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening.